This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So I was on the ship last week, and this uh, sailor comes to me as a, he's an LDO, limited duty officer. He's been in the Navy for a while. And he comes to me and he says, hey chaps, I, uh, I've been reading a book. I said, well, that surprised me. Uh, he said, serious, Taps, I found it in our wardroom and I just, on our shelf there, and I've just started reading it. So what's it called? And he says, well, it's real weird, but it's got me thinking. It's called uh, More Than a Carpenter. I said, oh. I said, so you like it? He's like, it's fascinating. He says, but this is, I don't understand it. He says, uh, and if you don't know the book, it's by a, an apologist, Josh McDowell. Uh, who's a fairly good apologist, and, and he, but he says, uh, he says, chaps, this is, what it's done is, he says, I'll be reading something, I don't understand it, but he'll give Bible verses, and I'll be like, I'm not sure what's the, that's what the Bible says, so I'll go to the Bible, and I'll open the Bible, and I'll be like, oh, that's, that's what it says. And he says, so I found that I'm reading the Bible more than I'm reading the book. To me, that is successful apologetics. If the book can drive you to the Bible, then that is successful apologetics. If he left there and said, you know what, Josh McDowell just really has a great reasoning, and he's got some really good apologetics, that was fascinating, and he never cracks open the Bible. It's been a failure. And so I I appreciate that, and and so we started talking. It's opened up conversations between him and I, uh, and uh, and I I just, the the gentleman needs to be saved, but he is searching, looking out, and looking for those things, and so so I appreciate that. But as we look at apologetics, when when we get to this point about the existence of God, the reality is, you know, if you think you're going to go and you're just going to convince someone of God's existence, and then, man, we, that was a success, you, we really failed. We want to show some things that, uh, that, that just point to the fact that God exists, but the reality is, I've said it this, and I know Addison said it last week, it's going to take the Word of God to illumine them. And, and, and while we, have, uh, uh, we can think and we can logically get to the place where as, as Addison even said last week, a God, and please don't, don't let that bother you, but as a God exists, only this book tells us about the one true God. In fact, I'll go a step further. C.S. Lewis, he talked about how he's wrestled with the existence of God, and he came to the point where he was a theist, which means he believed in a God or God. But as he struggled with it even more, and as he wrestled with it, he said he had to get to the point where he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And that's a very important thing, and we're not going to hit much on that. So I don't want you to think, as we talk about the existence of God, that simply getting to the place where we believe God exists is sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary. You can't believe that, that, uh, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God without believing what? In God, because he is the Son of God. And so that's a very important point I want to make. And I'm going to briefly review from last week. We're not going to go through everything. Uh, Addison, he, was, he, did, he did exceptional with it. 
Uh, but as we look at this, um, let me see. I'm, I'm going to try to figure out what I'm doing here in a second. All right. There we go. Remember this verse from last week? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. And I want to focus for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. This isn't a luxury of just, well, I'm going to think of God. So we're going to see here, Hebrews tells us that you have to believe in God. And what passage of Scripture, what chapter does this come from? We just call it the hall of faith. I mean, this is Hebrews 11, where it talks about faith. And so faith is fundamental. We, you know, we could go through a logical exercise, and we could come out of here and say, hey, the existence of God. Hey, but even the devils believe and tremble. So this verse is very important. The fool, though, has said in his heart, there is no God. And Addison talked about this last week. So really, where this is, a, this is one of those fascinating verses where if you really stop and you just dwelt on this and you, and you really sink your teeth into it, the fool, the one who cannot think, has said where he thinks that there is no God. The fool who cannot think is saying with his mind that cannot think. He's making a dogmatic statement. It is the stupidity of the statement to say there is no God. And it is that a fool would say that. And sometimes you think, oh, you know, this is a a dumb person would say it. And I know I've used a lot of words that I tell my children never use. I've said dumb and stupid all all in the same sentence. But really, that's with a stupidity. Someone who can't think. This isn't, just a, this isn't just someone who just has a low IQ like Tavis Long. This is someone who, this person just is, they're foolish. They're just not thinking. That person says there is no God. We looked at the spectrum last week of unbelief. We looked at atheism. Of course, atheism, it just concludes that there is no God. And, uh, and, and then there was the hard atheist and really, you'll see there, there's, uh, uh, there's there militant atheists who say they are dogmatic. There is no God. Or maybe, as Addison called it last week, a positive atheist, which is an oxymoron. But there's someone who says, I am positive that God does not exist. And then there's the soft atheist who says that, well, it's, it's not so much that God, I don't know. I'm not going to say God doesn't exist, but uh, uh, I don't believe he exists. I've come to that conclusion. But if you believe that he, doesn't, he does exist, that's fine. That's a soft atheist. But they ultimately come down for themselves to say, God does not exist. That's the fool that that, that psalm is talking about. And then there's the agnostic. The agnostic, again, is the person who says that, uh, now, God, he, he may exist, he, he may not exist, but it's just unknowable. It's unknowable. And there's actually two types of agnostics, again. There's the one who says God is unknowable. And then there is ones that say, we don't know if God exists. So they could even to get to the point where they'll say, hey, I believe God exists, but we can know nothing about him. In fact, if you remember from the founding fathers, deism was a very popular uh, belief structure at the time. And that was the great clockwinder uh, uh, theory of God, where they, they looked at God as this great clockwinder, where like the universe was this clock, and God winds it up, 
And he gets the universe going. He created it. He gets it going. And then he stepped back and he just lets the clock run as it will. He lets the universe run as it will. And what they believed was that after God created a thing, he steps back. He no longer interferes in the affairs of men. He lets him do whatever they want to do. Now, this is a form of agnosticism where they believe God is unknowable because if God steps back and no longer interferes in the affairs of men, he never revealed himself to us. He hasn't told us anything about himself. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that is an incoherent belief because Thomas Jefferson, for example, he said he was a deist and he said God no longer interferes, but yet he was able to take his Bible... And he opened it up to the, to the Gospels, and he took a knife, and he began to cut out all the miracles. Because he said those just could not possibly have happened. But the reality is, what about the rest of the Bible? If God is no longer dealing with the affairs of men, you've got to take your knife to the entire thing. If you're going to be consistent, Thomas Jefferson... So that's a deist, but that's a form of agnosticism. Someone who just views that, that, uh, that God is either, we don't know if he exists or not, or we may think he does, but we can't know anything about him. And of course, you remember, you know, we should, probably should have started with this. All these have an alpha or an A on the front. In Greek, if you ever want to take Greek, you'll learn this. In Greek, when you put the alpha on the front of a word, what does it do? It makes it negative. So you've got a theist is someone who believes in God, and an atheist is someone who doesn't. Agnosticism, Gnosticism, one of those great words you can impress your friends with, to know. It's Greek for to know. And so agnostic, agnostic is someone who says we, we know. An agnostic is someone who says we don't know. And that's an atheist and an agnostic. And another term that we won't really use often tonight, but I think it's a great term, is we have theologians, those who believe in the study of God and can study God, and atheologians. They have a theology. They just believe that they believe in the study of no God, of the, the non-existence of God. We're going to see how, again, an incoherent argument. But let's move on. So we've got agnosticism. Then there was apathyism. The person who says, I don't care. I don't care. It's, it's not worth arguing or talking about. And I would, I would venture to say, this is a very dangerous person. <laughs> and and I, I think we, I, I want to be a little, bit of, a little bit gracious to this kind of person. I think I come across a lot of these kind of people in the Navy. And it's not so much they're saying, I don't care. It doesn't matter. They say, I don't care because they've never been taught. I am finding more and more in our culture, we have a biblically illiterate culture. And when I talk to sailors, it, there was a day, even 20 years ago when I came into the Navy, there was a time when I could talk to sailors about Christ and I could use the word Jesus Christ and, and, the, and, the, and dine on the cross, and they kind of had a, an idea. I have talked to sailors who have no clue what I'm talking about. You say, Wow. And I think that's, what's, that's the tough point for us who live in these four walls. And if we never get out and encounter society. And we don't know how to dialogue with them. And share our faith with them. Using maybe not so much terms that they, they know, but how to teach them. Because I, I, I'm all for using biblical terminology. But often we use terms 
And we, I could say, you know, you just need to repent. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. They have to be taught. And in some ways, it's good that they've never developed bad habits and bad definitions of terms. But in other ways, we are starting from ground zero. And a lot of them are apatheists. They hold no interest in accepting or denying that God exists or does not exist. They live life as if he doesn't. But so do a lot of Christians. And while we would never say we're atheists, we would be practical atheists because we'll make decisions and we'll never get on our knees and pray and ask God what we should do. We just make the decision. We go on with our life. And we just do things because that's, you know, this, we just got to live life. And so while we would never say in our heart there is no God, we often with our actions act like he does not exist. The apatheist. And then there's the agnostic. The agnostic, not the agnostic. The agnostic is someone who is, if, if you see that word ignorant in there, but it's this person who concludes that we can't even have the discussion because we can't define, we can't give a good definition of God. We're not even defining the terms properly. And honestly, this person is a philosophical elitist who you just can never convince that there is a definition. They'll say, oh, that doesn't meet my definition. Okay, this is, this is, this is a struggle. If, if you come across an agnostic agnostic. I just don't think they're intellectually honest because they just can never come to an agreement on definitions. And I think it's important that we do have definitions and agreement on definitions. Why? Because if you're ever communicating with them and talking to them, you are coming in there on this neutral ground where you think you can actually have a conversation about anything. So if I can say, if they can say, well, there's no definition of God, can I say, hey, it's a beautiful day today. And they can look at me, and we can parse it and go philosophical with it, but at some point, we got to get just down to the common sense where we can actually talk to each other as humans because we understand human, we, English language, if we're speaking English. We understand the English language, and it comes, words come with definitions. We have to be able to communicate with each other. We live like that every day. It, try it. When you're out speeding down the interstate, and the cop pulls you over, and he says, hey, you were speeding, say, can we really come to a definition of what speeding means? Yeah, he'll tell you. He will define the term for you. And you can say, but I don't think that's really the good definition. You can talk. Well, but it's reality. All right, so that's that spectrum of unbelief. And then, we, and then uh, Addison introduced just a couple inductive arguments. And he didn't go into detail on, on this word inductive, but I want to just pause here real quick because... Uh, real quickly, I want to pause, and, uh, and I'll do it briefly, on this word inductive. All the arguments we have for God are inductive. You say, well, what do you mean? The only arguments we have that are deductive come from the word of God. Now, what do I mean by that? What's an inductive argument? An inductive argument is where, in essence, you take a little bit of here, 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 and you induce it and you put it together to form an opinion or a, to form an argument. Deduction is you start with a general statement, God is love. 
You could take that general statement of deductive, a deductive statement, God is love, and you could parse that down and say, well, I've seen God has uh, done this, and that definitely showed his love to me. Um, I've experienced, and uh, I have a, a wife who loves me, and, uh, and I'm to love my wife as God lo- uh, Christ loved the church, and so I can, I can, I can then deduce that how that's what God is love is like, and we can, we can start looking around us, but we start with that one fundamental principle, God is love. And then we make application. In inductive, we look around and we say, okay, I see this, and I see this, and I see this, and I can then make an overall conclusion that God is this. That's the inductive argument. Deductive is what we get from Scripture. And deductive arguments are stronger. They are, because they are dogmatic. They will say, they are what we call coercive arguments. You can't walk away from it without believing it unless you want to just deny it. It's going to coerce you into believing. I always like that term, coercive arguments. Um, it's not, don't think of it as a negative. That's not a bad thing. It should, an argument really should compel you to believe. And so when we look at things, even I've said it before, we're going to give you proofs for God. Well, the reality is that if a person, you say, well, I'm going to give them these proofs. The reality is, though, a proof has to prove it. And if they walk away still not convinced, nothing's really been proven. And that's okay. Because, you know, they are not the ultimate person we, that we, they're going to, whether you convince them or not, God is going to have to do a work in their life. And so the ultimate proof is going to be the deductive argument that God saves souls and that he's the one who does the work of faith in their heart. That's the deductive argument. But the inductive argument that we have, we can look around us, we can say, hey, there, for example, there's the argument of prob- from probability. Hey, we exercise faith in things. We... I am going to have faith that I am going to go outside and that my car will still be there. When I get in the car, I'm going to turn the key and it's going to come on and then I'm going to put it in reverse. I am going to all the way home tonight exercise faith. I'm looking at past experience and it's feeding my future expectations. But do I know if I'm going to make it home tonight? I don't. I'm looking at all the things around me and I'm inducing that it's, I, I think there's probability I'll, be, I'll make it home. But I have to exercise faith in doing that. There's the anthropic argument. Things about ourselves. There's things about you that, 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 that point the way you're made up that God exists. You know, we were made in the image of God. With a body, soul, and spirit, we are, we are able to think. The way you were created points that there was a creator. But we got to be careful with that. When your child misbehaves or does something unruly or downright wicked, we can't push that back and say, well, that must be what God's like because all the good things are... No, we can't. That's why it's an inductive argument. We have to be able to induce properly. Then there's the argument for immaterial, from immaterialism. What are immaterial things? You know, remember we talked about this idea of positivism or, or we said... There were the naturalists who said, hey, everything that exists can be sensed. Okay. Could you imagine the naturalist or the positivist who said, well, here's, here's a great example. Does the mind exist? Oh. 
I cannot see your mind. I can't even sense it. How do we know the existence of other minds? A young man and a young woman are married, getting married. They're at the altar. And he says to her, I don't even know if you can think. I don't need, I, I can't, I just, everything I know, I have to experience. And I have yet to experience you thinking. Not going to go far, right? She says, well, you know what? I've never experienced love. And I really can't tell you if I love you. I can't pinpoint it. I can't put my finger on whether I really love you or not. So he doesn't think she thinks, and she doesn't know if she loves him. Those are immaterial things. And so we can't just build our entire uh, argument that God exists because love and beauty and things like that around us are existent, but we depend on that type of stuff. We depend all the time on the immaterial, things you can't touch, see, smell. We depend on those things. Okay, so then he moved on. Those were just three he went through, but then he spent a little more time on these arguments, the historical witness argument. And again, he mentioned that some of these will fall apart, and they will. Eventually, they'll, they'll kind of degrade because if someone, if someone for example, comes to say, you say, to, hey, God exists. Well, why? Well, because there's people who wrote about him. They can deny that the Bible is true. And they could say, I'm not going to take that evidence. But here's an important thing. There is as much historical evidence that Jesus lived and walked this earth that we can accept as truth and fact. There's as much written evidence, and we will believe George Washington. I'm not saying there's more for Jesus. I'm just saying that there is sufficient evidence of written evidence that Jesus existed, as is there is sufficient evidence for George Washington's existence. I'll be careful asking how many of you were here when George Washington. I'm going to guess nobody. How do you know George Washington lived? How do they know? If they're going to deny Jesus existed, and then we, once, they, once they just acknowledge he existed, then we, there's, a, there's a whole nother level of arguments that you could get into to say, well, this is why he was the son of God. In fact, that's where C.S. Lewis got to the point, and I'll just briefly give them to you. He just said, if, if Jesus, there's enough evidence to say that Jesus existed, and he started with that. He believed there was a God, there was enough evidence Jesus existed. Then Jesus, though, made a statement, I am God. So now Jesus is either a liar and if he's a liar, he can't be good. And if he's not good, he, and he was lying, he says, I'm not God, then how, did, how are all these other good things possible that he did? So we can't say, well, he was just a good teacher. If he says, I am God, and he was not God, you actually have to take everything else he had, and you have to throw it away. Because he is a liar. That was C.S. Lewis's logic. He says, so maybe he's not, maybe if he was a liar, so let's say he's not a liar. Well, maybe he thought he was God. Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he was a lunatic. 
as C.S. Lewis said. If Jesus then was a lunatic, he was crazy, then we still can't trust anything he said because it was incoherent. And so C.S. Lewis says, so he got to the point where either he was a liar, which he wasn't, we can't, we don't, because he said things that were true, or he was a lunatic, and he came to the point where he said, I only have one, another option, he was Lord. And that's how C.S. Lewis came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So, as we look at this historical witness argument, there is unquestionably in history moments where God intervened in history. And the witnesses demonstrate that that is trustworthy. That's trustworthy. Now, we are putting a lot of... of, uh, of We're putting a lot of weight on that historical evidence. And we're trusting that what Matthew wrote was true. And someone can come back and say, yeah, well, you know, you may trust it's true, but how, did, how would he know? That again, that's where I get into saying, well, this is divinely inspired. He had someone telling him what to write. I mean, not verbally, but inspiring him to write it. And so as he wrote, I can trust him because... It's divinely inspired. But then you see how we're getting, Addison pointed this out. You see how we know that the Bible is divinely inspired because the Bible tells us it's divinely inspired. And so it is a weak, logical argument. And so I, I wouldn't camp out a lot there on that historical witnesses, although it is an argument. Then he mentioned the cosmological argument that uh, everything depends on something else for its existence. And then he mentioned there's two. That, that if you think of the person, think of this room full of dominoes. And, and all of a sudden, there's, they're all lined up and they're ready to be knocked over. Someone can knock those dominoes over and it'll cause a chain reaction. And that cause will cause another cause, will cause another cause until it all ends. And someone, pers- or something or someone had to start that. And that's what the cosmological argument is. This is the argument that children will come to you with, and they'll say, Dad, where did I come from? Well, you came from me. Well, where did you come from? Well, I came from my dad. Where did he come from? You go all the way back, right? Or they may ask you, Dad, where did God come from? They're practicing the cosmological. They understand that Things just don't come into existence. Something had to cause it. And as Addison mentioned last night, that infinite regress, you get back all the way to the point where you say, okay, there was something. What caused that? And there's what's called the uncaused cause. Whoa, there's something that had to exist to cause all this? There had to be someone that pushed the dominoes over. Well, that is temporal. And remember we talked about this guy, David Hume? David Hume said, I don't buy the cosmological argument. He said, because just because someone had to be there when it started does not logically mean they live now. That's a true argument. Except that's the temporal cosmological argument, temporal cause. Then Addison introduced the composite cause where he said, hey, everything 
exist together. So not only do I exist, and we can go back, my ancestors, but Dave Bassin exists. Not only does Dave Bassin exist, but this podium came from somewhere. These pews came from somewhere. My car came from somewhere. This building came from somewhere. Some, everything came together from somewhere, and it all interworks and interacts and, and goes together and causes things. Now take all of that, put it together. It's all contingent on each other. Put all that together. Put all those contingent things together. Who caused that? And all of a sudden, you move outside. And you say, wow, there's something that had to, ex- to pre-exist. And if it pre-existed, and we say, David Hume, see how if it died, let me ask you this. Did it have a beginning? And if he says, yes, it has a beginning, then who caused it to come into being? At some point, you get to an eternal past, the existence of God. That's the cosmological argument. This is where you left, the teleological argument. You finished talking about the teleological argument, and uh, this was the belief uh, that creation, there's a plan, a purpose, and a design. And where I want to pick it up is to remind us of the illustration that Addison shared with you last week about this train going into Wales. You say, I don't remember that. All right, I'll give it to you again. Remember the train that's going into Wales. So you're on this high-speed train, and you're headed into Wales. And as you look out on the hillside and the beautiful landscape of Wales, you see these white rocks that are all put together. And they say, welcome to Wales. And you on the train, you read that, and all of a sudden, you, something snaps in your mind that you connect where you are with where you're heading with that sign to say, I'm going to Wales. And I am being welcomed. So as you get into Wales, and you realize that that's there, here's the problem. Not the problem, but here's what's happening. If upon seeing from the train window that stones arranged just like that, and you were to conclude that you were indeed entering Wales, and if your sole reason for thinking this, whether it is, was in fact good evidence or not, was that the stones were just arranged in such a way that you could not consistently with that suppose that it was an accident. You can't look at that and say, wow, that was, how'd those rocks get there? That's an accident. Now, you could go with that argument and say, that is incredible. I am going into Wales, and there is those stones that accidentally appeared like that. But here's the problem. The moment those stones start, they don't speak to you, but soon as they start relaying knowledge to you, it can't be an accident. It can't be. Because, why? Because if it is, it is communicating with your brain, and the reality is if that's an accident, then you have to be an accident, and you actually have to be accidentally going into whales. And if you're accidentally going into Wales, how can it be welcoming you knowing full well that that's where you are going? Someone has to know. It can't be an accident. Does that make sense? Say, no. Here's the point. If it's an accident, it cannot communicate knowledge to you, or it can, but you can't receive it because you are just as much an accident. It's not just coincidence. 
So that, though, was the teleological argument. But we want to pick up that with the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument. Don't, don't let this scare you, because there's another term for transcendentalism that's dangerous, and we will stay away from that. But let's take this train into Wales. So while that helped or maybe not helped us in understanding the problems proposed uh, by the teleological argument, the transcendental argument provides even more clarity on this train going into Wales and why it's important. So as we consider the transcendental argument, we, ask, we have to ask ourselves then, okay, this is the question you have to ask. How do I know anything? Remember, if it says, welcome to Wales, how did you deduce that that was actually Wales? How did you read it? How did you know that's what it was saying? How do you know anything? A few weeks ago, in our first couple classes, we, I introduced this word, epistemology. Do you remember that word? And I explained how modern and postmodern philosophers cast more and more doubt on our ability to know. Epistemology really is the study of truth or of belief, of, of what we know. They first attacked the supernatural, and then from there, these postmodernists were able to attack our ability to know anything at all. These philosophers of knowledge, operating in an increasingly secular framework, have come to argue that it is not possible to know anything with certainty. So as we're coming into Wales and we see this, the postmodernists say, it says welcome to Wales, but we don't know that, is what it says. Some of you are sitting there saying, well, no, it says that. I can read that with my eyes. It's communicating information to me. Yeah, but you don't really know that. So how do we know anything with certainty? How does that explain our experience of knowledge? We all think we know things. We live our lives as if knowledge, as if knowledge is possible. We live as if it's useful, that it's good to actually know something. In fact, the belief that we can know things seems to be borne out when we successfully act and make choices on the basis of things we know. If knowledge is real, where does it come from? How is it reliable? Do you live as if you know something? I hope so. <laughs> you say, I don't know nothing. No, you do. You came in. It's as simple as you coming in and having a seat right here. You sat down. You knew that something was going to happen tonight. That we were going to have a service, and we are going to have a class, and we are going to sit, and we're going to listen. And even as I've communicated, I may not have done it well, but I'm using words, and you're listening, and you're connecting what you know to what I am saying, and you're putting it all together. You depend on knowledge. Don't let anybody tell you you're stupid. You need knowledge. You're getting it. You're learning. But if knowledge is real, where does it come from? The transcendental argument is simple. It argues that God is the precondition for knowledge, logic, science, and conceptual generalizations. God made the world. He knows all the facts. Listen, think of this. God knows everything. All the facts there are to know about the world. 
He made us in his image with the capability to know things. And he upholds both us and the world continuously with his word. In such a universe, the possibility of knowledge is unproblematic. We don't have to be skeptic. We don't have to say we really can't know anything. No, we do know things. And we know what we know has to come from somewhere. You probably have never thought about knowledge, not as a tangible thing, but knowledge in a way that it actually had to come from something. Like this. What is one plus one? Two. Thank you. One plus one is two. All right? I know some of you are sitting there. Oh, that's a trick question. One plus one is two. How do you know that? See, I've never thought about it. You went to school. Someone told you, right? Prove it. Prove one plus one is two. You can't. Now, I could take two items, and I could say, okay, I could take an apple, and I could take an orange. I got one orange and one apple. One plus one apple plus one orange equals two. Oh, now we're off. We're not even talking about apples. We're talking about apples and oranges now. Because the concept, though, is there. One plus one is two. No one created that. We just discovered it. No, no mathematician created that, that truth. But it has existed, right? So where did it come from? I like the transcendental argument because... It keeps me from being a skeptic and saying, well, we can't know it. No, we know things. We know that there is no such thing as a square triangle. We know that one plus one will never equal four. We know that, uh, that um, uh, you can't, again, you can't have a square circle, right? There's truths. God's existence is the precondition for this knowledge. It uses the evidence of the existence of knowledge, logic, science, and conceptual generalizations to be logically, to logically conclude the existence of God because of the definition of God. He is orderly. So when we talk knowledge, even that knowledge, it has to come from God. And we have to ask ourselves, or ask the person who is a skeptic, say, well, where do, do things come that we do know? And if they were, if they were, if they were uh, going to be honest with themselves, they'd get to the point where they have to acknowledge that they do have some sort of knowledge. I mean, they get up and they knew how to put clothes on. They knew something. We know things. Where does it come from? That's the transcendental argument. Any questions or concerns with that argument? What we know, knowledge comes from somewhere. Let's quickly move on, though, to the ontological argument. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but this one is fascinating. The ontological argument is really the concept of being. Ontology is the, the, the idea of being. The ontological argument, it's a tricky argument, we're not going to spend a whole lot, but we are going to look at it. We cover it because it is a common argument that often comes up with unbelievers. And this is what it goes like. It goes something like this. 
God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. Okay, so think about the greatest thing that you can conceive. It's a pretty tough exercise. What do you mean the greatest thing I can conceive? The greatest thing that could possibly be conceived possesses the attribute of existence. So, okay, so here's this idea. I want you... I'm going to play the atheist, and I don't believe God exists. And you think in your mind as the theist that God does exist. Okay, and we're going to, we're going to challenge our wits here. All right, so I am going to challenge, you're going to challenge me. Okay, so you ask me, okay, what is, the, what is God? And I'll think, okay, the, the greatest thing that I'm going to think that doesn't exist. Okay, God, if he existed, he would have to be pure, good, omniscient, and I could give you a whole list of things, and I don't think that exists. You say, okay, I agree all with all that. I believe that, if God ex- that, that for God, he would have to be omniscient and omnipotent and pure, lovely and simple and, and all, all these things. But you're going to fix on to your belief of God his existence, Let me ask you then, whose God is greater? The one that is a figment of my imagination and doesn't exist? Or the God that is a figment of your imagination, allow me to say that that way, but yet he does exist. Existence implies greatness. You, you know, for example, let's have two briefcases up here, and they are full of a million dollars. At least that's what I tell you. One, though, is actually empty. And one is full of actually a million dollars. And I say to you, which of these briefcases is greater? Which million dollars would you like? The one in the empty briefcase where it's actually not in there? Or the one that exists in this briefcase? Which would you choose? The one that exists, right? You would say, I think I'll take the briefcase that actually has a million dollars in it. That would be greater than the one that's empty. Because existence implies greatness or greater than non-existence. So God is, any, is that thing that which nothing greater can be conceived. And the greatest thing that could possibly be conceived has to possess the attribute of existence. If a thing did not exists, have existence, then there still has to be something greater than that that can be conceived. Therefore, God exists. It really starts going in and out and gets you, it gets you really kind of twisted and wrapped around it. But this is the pretty the simple point. If it argues that God exists because in order to be God, he would have to exist. Some have argued that this is just verbal trickery. Others, that it is the most profound argument possible. It was really kind of formed by this guy named Anselm, and he he started to find, he said, because God has to exist. Well, then there was a guy who said, you know what? He was was trying to argue with Anselm, who was Middle Ages, a, a monk, and he says, no, no. He says, I can actually, just because... 
just because I can contemplate something doesn't necessarily mean it has to exist. And he said, for example, I can think of the most perfect island. And, and I can conjure up this island. It's beautiful. And it's, it's sunny. And the weather's nice. And it's got fruit. And it has everything we need. It is a perfect island. But he said to Anselm, he said, just because I can think of it does not mean it exists. And Anselm comes back, he says, but you and I have a different definition of what we think of perfect. Perfect is not just the best. Perfect is not just, you know, um, I can bring in here and I could say, hey, who's who's the best basketball player of all time? And we could have this argument, we could put LeBron James in here, we could put Michael Jordan in here. And we could say, which one is the best? And we could argue that. And we may come to the conclusion that, hey, we have the perfect basketball player in Michael Jordan. Uh, and we could say that. We could come to that conclusion. Or we could say, we could bring in a bunch of racehorses in here and we could say, which is the perfect racehorse? And we could put, but really all we're doing is just choosing the best. We're not really looking at what is perfect. And in that island scenario, you're just looking at what is a, that's the best island that you can conceive. But if we are really going to go down this road, not only to be the best basketball player, the, the most perfect basketball player, it can, it'll still continue just to be a figment of our imagination unless that thing comes into existence. And all we're still doing is just looking for the best. He says, no, perfect. Existence has to be perfect. That means nothing greater. It is complete in and of itself. And if you look at the definition of God, it obtains that. It gets to that definition that it, it, God encompasses everything. And therefore, because he encompasses everything and existence is one of those things, He necessarily has to exist. You cannot argue away his existence. It does get confusing. But that's the ontological argument. I'm sure you're not going to sit down and have that conversation with someone. But the point is that you can always argue to the the existence of God just by the definition of what we've defined God to be or those attributes. But let's move on to the last argument we'll look at tonight, the axiological argument. An axiom is a law, a rule. Uh, Logical is something, again, that you study. It's the the study of laws. And so we're going to look at this axiological argument for three reasons. When reason, now remember, let me just define it again here. The existence of the objectivity, objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability provides moral grounds for believing in God. We have moral laws that we live by. In fact, if, uh, uh, we can't really deny the moral laws that exist. So, when reasoned correctly, this is one of the most sound arguments. It does. It builds on previous arguments and adopts logical considerations that we've already developed. But there are objections to the argument, and that will provide us our transition to our topic next week. But this, in fact, the fact that ethics, morality, and conscience exist in our world is better explained by the existence of a moral lawgiver who ordered these things to be. 
When you go out into society, into society and you behave in a certain way, you don't kill the person you're sitting next to on, the, on a bus randomly. You don't do that. You may say, well, that's a bit extreme. You don't even steal from them. What causes you not to do that? I would dare say it's not because that we have laws telling you not to do that. Now, laws are very important, but I think we behave in society in certain ways, and this is why the Bible tells us that in the last days, perilous times will come, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Because we, for, for almost 6,000 years, we have been eroding away at, at, the, at God's moral law. But it still exists. It's why you can actually remove the, the, the Ten Commandments from any courtroom you want. But it's never going to make it okay to kill. All right? You can remove them. But we still have that moral law that we live by. And because there is a moral law that I think we could come to an agreement exists, there has to be a lawgiver. Someone had to give those laws. The law just did not develop over time. There had to be a lawgiver who ordered these things to be. All humans have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Every culture in human history has upheld beliefs about right and wrong. We seem to operate as though some things are right and others are wrong. But why do we do this? Where did this sense of morality come from? There's really two answers. One, our sense of conscience comes from God who created us with a moral order and equipped us to act rightly. Or it came from somewhere else in, within creation. For example, it could come from our culture or evolution or our survival instincts. It either had to come from a lawgiver, again, or it came from time, chance, and circumstance. There are people who seriously argue our sense of conscience comes from evolution or instinct or social construct. In other words, morality is not objective, external to ourselves, and we will not be held accountable for violating it. This theory, though, has been taken to its logical conclusion by a Princeton professor by the name of Peter Singer. He argues that ethics should be balanced by measuring, as he says, and I quote, the happiness maximizing best interest of society. Ethics should be balanced by measuring the happiness, ma happiness maximizing best interest of society. His conclusions leave him to believe this, in theory, that it is not only acceptable but preferable, for example, to commit infanticide in the case of severely handicapped babies and that selective geriatricide would save us money on health care costs because it's better for society. Presumably, both of these lead to a relative greater happiness, an improved lot for society. But see, what he's saying is, for our society, because they take so much money, we, we should kill all the old people. And because there's handicapped children who will grow in this world, we should kill the babies. But this is emotionally dishonest. And it needs to be rejected, not because it makes no sense on paper. It's actually, he can make a logically sound argument if we use his assumptions. But it it's, needs to be rejected because it does not work in the real world. We, though, we live as though lives have value and meaning. Even Professor Singer, listen to this, he cannot bring himself to live out his theory. Because he has chosen to take his invalid mother and provide her with medical care and dignity because he cannot emotionally come to grips with taking her life. Say, Dr. Singer, you need to kill your mom to live out your theory. And he won't 
Why? Because we have a moral code, a law that we live by. Relativistic morality will not satisfy our desire for justice and fairness. It needs to be rejected. We live as though some things are right and others are wrong. That's why we are indignant if someone takes our parking spot at the mall. We appeal to a higher standard, a judge, a sense of fairness. My children say it all the time. Dad, that's not fair. Why? Because they have this concept of what is right and what is wrong. Where did it come from? It could be skewed. It could be ruined by the fall. But they do have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. If morality were socially constructed and we knew it, there would be little keeping us from violating it at every, every chance we have. We would just simply look out for ourselves. In fact, most people, including most Christians, we don't do that. We don't just live for ourselves. We're relatively nice people in our society. Again, it's getting worse and worse. But we live as though some things are objectively right and wrong. That's why we all had problems on September 11, 2001. Because it just it didn't sit right. Or when you watch the news and... And there are people who are unbelievers who will watch the news and say, this just doesn't seem right. The belief that morality is relative and socially constructed does not resonate with our experience. It does not adequately explain the human experience of morality. If we, A, have a desire for justice, and B, generally know the difference between right, what is right and wrong, then we need to ask ourselves, where did this come from? Did your mom ever say, today, we're going to cover 57 rules? And tomorrow we will cover another 137, and we will cover every situation that you will ever experience in life. No, it doesn't happen that way. Right and wrong are planted in our brains. It's called our conscience. But this conscience planted in our brain was done so by a lawgiver who is morally perfect. In the same way that there are laws of nature, so we believe that there are moral laws or absolutes, and they flow from God. He has built into us a standard of right and wrong. And when Paul said in Romans 2, verses 14 through 15, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Biblically, we see that our conscience is a gift given to us by God, something left by him to reveal his nature to us, to show us his existence. However, because this conscience is written in our hearts, there has to be a lawgiver. There comes with it the opportunity to disobey the law. There's a capacity for good and evil. But why do people live the way they do? We are a strange race. Individually, we have come to such, an, we have such extreme thoughts of encouragement and discouragement in our minds. And as a race, we are given to actions that we characterize as very good or very evil. And so... This is where we're going to get to, where we see that there is a law, there is right and wrong, but because there is this law and there is this standard, and we say because it, it shows the existence of God, now we've got to deal with the problem. If God does exist, and God is good, then why do we have evil? Because if God is good, 
wouldn't he keep evil things from happening to me? Or maybe he doesn't have the power to stop it. And if he doesn't have the power to stop it, then is he God? This is what's called the problem of evil. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And I'll say this as we look at next week. If you can tackle the problem of evil and come out of here saying, wow, I really got it down. I know why God does what he does. You should teach this class. I have not figured that out, and we will not. And so don't come next week thinking, hey, we're going to get an airtight case for why there's bad things that happen in this world. Because, and we'll explain why. But I want to read to you real quick as we leave here. As I sum up, I just give you, I just want to show you the belief that God is more plausible explanation of the way, the existence of God is more plausible of the way things are than not believing in God. And I hope that we've kind of looked at some of the barriers, but you say, what do I do with this? Bob Jones Sr. once said, as you contemplate this thing, I would rather hear a man say, I seen something, when he really saw something, than to hear a man say, I have seen something, when he never saw anything. In other words, apologetics, like the existence of God, teaches the man who has seen something to say it in the proper king's English. But ultimately, this is it. There was a radio debate among scholars concerning the existence of God. And when the phone lines were open to the public, an irate woman called in who obviously lacked academic sophistication. She was thoroughly frustrated by the scholarly debate. And though she probably never had heard of the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, or the teleological argument, she complained, Ain't you guys got your eyes open? Look out the window. Where do yins think all that come from? She had a reason for her faith. So you may be someone who says, I don't understand apologetics. You just gave me six arguments for the existence of God, and I don't remember one of them. That's okay. You know why? We need people who, when they say, I know God exists because I've seen him. I don't care if you say it in the right arguments in the King's English in the right way. It's better than the theologians or someone who say, well, let me give you the logical arguments for God, but they don't know him. And they can argue up and down logically, but they are just like the devils who believe and tremble. And so as you leave here, be encouraged that when you say, you know what, I've seen God. I've seen his work. I've seen what he's done in my life. I've seen what he's done in my children's life. I've seen his work in my life. I've experienced that. And Tavis Long, there's nothing you can do to change my opinion that he exists. Yes. Look out the window and see what God has done. That is a reason for your faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. But to believe or to have faith, we must first believe that he is. And so let me encourage you. These are neat. They're interesting. You say, no, that was actually boring. 
No, I think they're fascinating. But it pales in comparison to when he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can take that, and that's all the argument you need. And it's going to be the Holy Spirit who's going to work in the life of the person that you're talking to, and they, the Holy Spirit is going to have to draw that person to himself. And he's going to have to put the faith in that heart of that person. You can put a logical argument in, and you can even be like the guy on my ship who says, man, it's got me thinking because some things don't make sense. That's good. But let's let the Holy Spirit speak through the Word of God. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our trips home. Do give us safety, we pray. Lord, we pray that we'd be able to come back here on Sunday ready to worship corporately as a body. Lord, I pray that you would be with Ron Smith. Give him safety as he travels from California here. I pray that, uh, that uh, uh, it would be an exciting time to, uh, to reunite with him and hear of his ministry out in Cal City. I pray that you would bless him. Lord, for all those who are on our prayer list, Lord, we do ask that your will be done in their lives. Lord, and help us to not get so caught up in the philosophy and the, and the logical arguments that we think are there, Lord. And we may not be able to say it in the proper English and the proper arguments, but we know and we cry out to you and say, Oh God, to whom else should we go? For you are the one who has, is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that we would tell others about that. I pray that we would be consistent and faithful and bold in sharing the gospel. Give us the words to say, and give us the courage to do it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org, or call us at 757 757- We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life.